The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. A number of years ago, I was working as a cleaner in a high school, cleaning classrooms in a high school. Great job to have when you're at Bible college um, because you can just listen to sermons or podcasts or whatever it is and get, just get your work done. Um, and there was this really strange culture in this particular uh, cleaning staff, this cleaning department that we had, that um, it, it actually was a fairly toxic culture, actually. It wasn't a good culture. And what it was is that the cleaning staff would get particularly upset when the teachers would leave a fairly significant mess in the classroom. Now, it's understandable when things are pretty terrible, but there, there's just a degree, though, that like we're looking back and I realized that as a, as a department, we were taking things too far. Like It was at the point where some teachers were getting kind of blacklisted because their classrooms were always messy. And I got kind of sucked into this environment. I kind of got sucked into this toxicity for a while until by God's grace, I realized, hold on, this is my job. If there's a mess in the classrooms, that, meant that, learn, that means that learning happened today. And the reason why I'm employed is is to clean up after this and make sure that this is actually prepared and ready to go so that learning can happen the next day. That, that, that classroom wasn't made and built so that it could be kept clean for me. Rather, I was employed to keep this classroom clean for the sake of these students and for the sake of this teach, these teachers who were actually using these classrooms. And it, it massively, radically changed the way I approached my job. I, I, instead of going into classrooms and going, oh, how terrible is this? You know, they've, they've obviously been cutting with scissors today and there's just paper everywhere. And I just used to like have, a, have a, just, a, a, just like a bad stink attitude towards them. I started going, oh, hold on, hey, praise God, learning happened today. Kids are in a classroom, in a safe space. They're, 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 they're actually learning and this is a wonderful blessing for them that they get to be in a classroom. I, I came to the realization by God's grace, this is not about me. This isn't about me. And as soon as I went, this isn't about me, that job became it, it actually liberated that job. I mean it went from being this massive burden to going, I, I get to go in and just help out here. I get to be part of this. The passage we're looking at today, John's gonna have the same message for us. This is not about us. This is not about you. This is not about me. This is about God. We're looking at this historical biography of Jesus written by the Apostle John. We're going through John's Gospel. We're in week number three. Um, we've been going pretty slowly. Things will pick up in time to come as, as we look at certain passages that need to be kept together. Uh, but John wrote this. John, John spent some time. He met Jesus. He spent three years with Jesus. And then he was forever changed afterwards. And then John wrote this passage, John wrote this book, so that we would come to the exact same conclusion that John did, that Jesus Christ, this, this person, is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and that by believing that, that we would receive the full breadth and the depth and the width and the height of life that God intends for us to have and to live. The claim of the Bible is that we are not living the way that God intended for us to live. And the only way that we can enjoy life as God, who created us, intended for us to enjoy it, is through Jesus Christ. 
and any other way that we attempt to live life outside of Jesus Christ will lead to misery, will lead to despair, and will ultimately lead to eternal death. But eternal life is promised to us by Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. The invitation to become a Christian is not to adopt just a certain set of values. It's not to join a club. It's not to to adopt a certain political ideology. It's an invitation to experience the life that God has for us. Last week, John said this explicitly. He said, about Jesus, he said, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of mankind. By light, John meant the lens by which we understand our entire reality. John was saying the only way that we can truly understand reality is if we see life through the lens of Jesus Christ, that everything gets through, gets considered, gets absorbed, gets seen and heard and, and, and everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. And this week, John's going to back up what he said by pointing out something that is often regarded to be the light, but is not the light. That's us. We are not the light. John's saying, Jesus was the light, Jesus is the light, and we are not the light. He's saying, he's explaining, this is what the light is. Now, today, with the passage we're looking at, he's saying, let me tell you what the light isn't. And it's us. Left to our own devices, we interpret interpret reality through a lens of our own making. The lens of self. We situate ourselves in the center of the universe and we evaluate everything based on whether or not it affirms our position in the center of the universe or whether it threatens our position in the center of the universe. Back to that cleaning job. I interpreted what was going on there with with myself in the center, thinking to myself, what about me? Why doesn't this is affecting me badly? If something affirms our position in the center, then that thing is a good thing. And we say amen to that. Yes, that's really good. But then if something threatens our position in the center of the universe, it's a bad thing and we want to forbid that. Sin drives us to live in this way. And John's thesis in these verses is that this is a terrible way to live. And it will end in our misery. To live as if we are the center of the universe and the arbiter of all truth will result in our misery, will result in our disappointment, and ultimately it will result in our death. And John does this by pointing to a man named John the Baptist as the best example of this. He's just said, Jesus is the light. Now let me tell you what isn't the light, and it's us. Here's the main point of today. We are not the point. God is the point, and that is the best thing for us. We are not the point. God is the point, and that is the best thing for us. So looking at this text, um, we'll look back, look back at verse 4 for a moment. John says, there was a man, oh yeah, verse 4, John, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's not talking about himself there. He's talking about John uh, the Baptist. In fact, if you go looking for 
John the Apostle referring to himself throughout this throughout his book, he'll only refer to himself as the apostle, sorry, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which is a really great way to think of yourself as a disciple. Like we should learn from that. Like we should think of ourselves as the disciple whom Jesus loves. That's a good way for us to think about this. And so I might get a little bit confusing this morning because we're talking about John the Apostle, John the writer of this gospel, John the Evangelist, talking about John the Baptist. There's two Johns this morning. So if you get lost in it, just, just try your best to keep up because we're just talking one John writing about another one. This is John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. And the reason why he introduces John the Baptist is because John the Baptist lived an utterly Jesus-centered life. For John the Baptist, Jesus was the point of his whole life. His life orbited around God. And we're told that he was sent from God, just like the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 16 that John the Baptist was the last of these Old Testament prophets who spoke with the words and the authority of God. After Jesus Christ came the apostles whom Jesus authorized, and these apostles wrote our New Testament, and that is why we have the, the Bible written as it is, written by these authorized men who were authorized by God. And then John says that he, that's John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And this is where it should dawn on us, just how Jesus-centered John the Baptist was. The words, therefore, witness and testify, are essentially the same word. In fact, in some of your translations, it will bring that out. They have the same Greek, Greek root. If you call a witness to the stand in court, you don't want that witness there talking about himself or herself. You want the witness to testify about what they saw. You don't want them talking about themselves. And this tells us that John's purpose and activity were wrapped around Jesus Christ. He came as a witness to bear witness. It's a double up there. He came, this is who John was and this is what John did. There's no disparity between who John, what John the Baptist was and what John the Baptist did. Some people will, will say that they are one thing, but they're actually the opposite. They, they, do the act, they act the opposite, but not John. Who he was was all about Jesus and what he did was all about Jesus. He came as a witness and also bore witness about Jesus. And when you become a Christian, both your identity and your activity change. Who you are and what you do both cease to have you as the center anymore, but have Jesus now at the center. Jesus becomes the center, he becomes our identity, and he becomes the center of our activity. We are not the point. God is the point. And that is the best thing for us. How often are we consumed with self-promotion and self-exaltation and just self in general? When we are left on autopilot, the default position of our hearts is to place ourselves as the ultimate beneficiary of all decisions, of all actions, of all outcomes. This idea then of, of living a, a Jesus-centered life is utterly radical. The default position of our hearts is is what about me? 
What do I get out of this? Hasn't anybody thought of me? What, how, does, how does this benefit me? Get out of my way. And, and that underwrites everything. In fact, just this morning in my devotional time, I just had this unbelievable, just a convicting sense of, man, I, I'm still so far, way too close to the center than what I thought I was. But I just can't stop thinking about myself so often. And that's the case whether we are driving our cars. Like if we, if we think, if we, if we evaluate our hearts as we drive our car, if you evaluate, evaluate my heart as I drive my car, all I'm thinking is, what about me? Like someone moves into my lane, as if it's my lane. It's not my lane. I'm in that lane for about half a second as I drive past that, then that's no longer, I care a lot about the piece of bitumen in front of me. And then I don't give a stuff about it as soon as I've gone past it, and yet I have the gall to call it my lane, and how dare they cross into my lane? What about me? Like, that self underwrites everything. We are so often thinking about ourselves, whether it's the way we drive, the way we speak to our colleagues, the way we study everything. Even actions that look like they are totally selfless have at their center a self-justifying edge to them. And one of the great mistakes that we will make as Christians is that we bring this self-focus into our relationship with Jesus. If we think of Jesus as an upgrade to an already pretty good life, or as a means of keeping ourselves in the center, we're going to find the Bible to be boring, irrelevant, and Jesus' commands will completely chafe against us. And that's a pretty good litmus test, actually. If you find the Bible boring and irrelevant, it might be that you are actually at the center of the universe. Your gravity needs to change. Jesus is not the earth to our sun or the moon to our earth. We orbit around him. He's not offered to us as an addition to our lives, but rather that he would become our life. Jesus is life. And this is what we see in John the Baptist. He was out of the center, John says, so that all people might believe through him. John was only interested in getting out of the way so that people could see Jesus and believe in Jesus. In fact, in John 3, John the Baptist will say, He must increase and I must decrease. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And verse 8 cements this in place. John says, He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. In verse 4, John said that Jesus was the light. And now here in verse 8, he says, this is what's not the light, and it's us. John was not the point. Now, John was a pretty big deal in those days. John went out to the Jordan River and was baptizing people, and he drew large crowds, like huge crowds, so huge, in fact, that, um, that the Jewish leaders had to send delegates out to find out exactly who John was. They had to investigate. We'll learn about that in the weeks to come. And actually, if we look in Matthew 11, Jesus says something extraordinary about John the Baptist. To paraphrase, he basically says, calls him the greatest person to have ever been born of a woman. Aside from Jesus, as John, Jesus himself says, John the Baptist 
was the greatest person to have ever lived. That's a massive claim, right? Like if somebody, let's say Andrew got up after this and said, thanks so much, Jimmy, you're the greatest person who has ever lived. We go, whatever, that's really, it's not true. It's, it'd be really, really weird. But it's a massive claim. And this is Jesus, perfect in wisdom, calling John the Baptist the greatest person who has ever lived. And yet John is saying, and he's not the point. He's making this incredible comparison. Look at the greatest person who has ever lived, and he's not the point. We are not the point. God is the point, and that is the best thing for us. We live in a culture that is saturated with self-promotion saturated with promoting ourselves. And the reason why is, as a whole, our world has basically rejected this text, this message, this passage. Believing that we are the light, believing that we are the source of all truth, that we are, we are the best, uh, our hearts is, is the best lens to understand reality. We've become obsessed with self-promotion. Whether that's in the way that we celebritize people or the way that we're constantly taking photos of ourselves and publishing them to the world or just in the fact that everything is becoming increasingly easier for the sake of convenience around us. Like this has got to orbit around us. In our culture, the celebrity is apparently the pinnacle of society. The famous people are the ones who have made it. And everybody else seems to be scrambling to, to get that coveted spotlight of influence. You don't have to be a genius to know that no life is found there. And all we have to do is look at the lives of some of these celebrities who we idolize and see that their lives are falling apart, their relationships are a wreck, they are miserable and unhappy. Or maybe it's the phenomenon of taking selfies and promoting them to the world as an example of this self-indulgence or this self-promotion. I looked at a few studies this week, and in 2014, it was estimated that around 34 billion selfies were taken that year. That was 10 years ago. I shudder to think what it is now. And these studies make, it a, make a really strong case that those people who take selfies regularly, like multiple times per day, and post them, uh, have massive issues, mass massive problems with... Uh, self-image, self-esteem, and massive problems of anxiety. And those who edit those photos to make themselves look a little bit better have even worse outcomes. We are not the point. Self-promotion and self-centeredness is the pathway to certain misery. Now, celebrities and selfies... It's easy to pick on that. We can kind of sit on a high horse and go, so silly people. But there's plenty of other ways that we mistakenly think that we are the light. But maybe it's really important to you that you have to win the argument. You have to have the final say. Like whatever's been discussed, you have to have the final word. You have to make sure that everybody knows exactly what you believe. Now, maybe that's actually problem of you feeling like, oh, I'm at the center of the universe, I need to finish this off. 
Or maybe it's really important that your story gets told, like you're in a conversation and, and you're, you just have to make sure that you're included in that and everybody knows how, how funny you were or how enlightened you were or whatever story that is. Or, or maybe it's the fact that, and you know this of your own heart, that the stories that you do you tell about yourself, you exaggerate them, them a little bit. Like not too much that you would call it a lie, but enough that it makes you look pretty good. Or maybe it's just the fact that you love to name drop the books you've read, the, the, the articles that you've, you've read, or the, the size of your library, whatever it is, and you, and you like to make sure people are very well aware of just how smart you are. See, this, this self-centeredness, this self-promotion, it's not so much thinking highly of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself all the time, constantly promoting yourself. And it's all backwards. We are not the point at all, and our attempts to be the point, to be the center of the universe, are indirectly and directly the cause of every single disappointment and letdown and problem that we've ever encountered. If you go back to the beginning, if you go back to when sin first entered the world in Genesis 3, you see the anatomy of misery. It says there that Eve saw the tree, saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. In other words, she saw something and she thought, that's going to be good for me. She desired it, that's good. Even though God, her father, had said, this is not good for you, even though he had, he had forbidden that, she went, no, actually, I'm at the center of the universe. That there is good for me. She became the person who actually decided what was good for her. She entered the center of the universe. She decided that she knew better than God, that she was the one who should be calling the shots, and that God no longer held any kind of authority over her. She was at the center. She saw, she desired, and so she took. And that, there, those three words, see, desire, take, that is the anatomy of sin. Like we can, if we were to dissect every single sinful thought and word and action of our lives, it could be boiled down to we saw something, we desired it for us, we put ourselves in the center, and so we took it. And the Bible actually uses those words over and over again. If you look at King David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, it says that he saw her, he desired her, and he took her. Or when uh, earlier on, when the Israelites have entered into the land of Canaan and they've, they've conquered Jericho, and God says, don't take any spoils, everything in that must be committed to, to destruction, there's a man named Achan, and he sees some treasure, he desires that treasure, and he takes that treasure. We see, we desire and we take. We see an opportunity to be kept in the center of the universe. We place our desires above the needs of others, including God. And we take according to our tastes, regardless of the inevitable cost on other people. We give ourselves exemptions on traffic rules that we would give to nobody else. We, we make it okay for us to tell a little white lie, but are so upset when, some, when we are told that same thing. 
We always have to contribute a story so that others think that our lives are exciting. We name drop the books we've read just to make others feel inferior and ourselves superior. We must have the final word in the the argument. We pile on someone's struggles because it makes us feel less broken. We see, we desire, and we take. As uh, Andrew read out before, Isaiah 53, 6, we went our own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We did our own thing. We decided I'm in charge. I'm going to be. I'm going to be the one who calls the shots. I'm in the centre. I'm the point. That's that's the central point of sin. That's what sin is. And it never leaves us feeling any better. It only leaves us feeling utterly lousy and guilty. Glorifying ourselves is not what we were created to do. John is saying, make yourself the point and you'll be utterly miserable, but make God the point and you will find life. We were created to glorify God. We were not created to be the center of the universe, but to orbit the center of the universe. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is at the center of the universe and we were created to glorify Him. Consider Exodus 14 when God was rescuing Israel out of slavery. God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And we see God say that again and again and again through the Exodus story. I'm going to do this so that I get glory. In Isaiah 42 verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. God doesn't share his glory. Or take Psalm 137 verse 2 where the the psalmist says, You have exalted your name and your promise above everything else. Like God has made his name more important than anything else. Or consider Ephesians 1, where Paul says that God predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. God is chiefly concerned with his own glory, with him being the center of the universe, with him being the point. That's what the Bible is about, that God is glorious, that God is the one who should be worshipped, that God is the supreme being above all beings. And that is a good thing for us. That is a good thing for us. He he designed us to glorify Him and to worship Him and to orbit around Him and for Him to be the the apple of our eye, for Him to be the absolute center of our universe. And that's not because God is some ego-driven, insecure being who just wants people to pay Him compliments. It's because the inseparable outcome of glorifying God is our joy. The inseparable outcome of glorifying God is our joy. Make yourself the center and you'll be miserable. Make God the center and you'll have increasing and everlasting joy beyond all circumstances. And that's God's intention for us, to have increasing joy and delight in Him. And because God is the most wonderful thing in in existence, He points us to him, to glorifying him. 
If God pointed us elsewhere, he would not be loving. We couldn't say that he's loving. Like if I wanted to just give the most wonderful present to my kids because I love them so much, but then gave them something second rate and inferior because I just couldn't be bothered, that that wouldn't be loving. If God really is the most supreme, wonderful being in existence, then it is loving of him to point us to him, to enjoy him. Glorifying God is the pathway to unending joy. In Psalm 4, David is talking to God, and he's talking about those who live and walk in vanity. And David says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound. Or in Psalm 16, again, David is in anguish, but he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's why Paul says to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He's not saying rejoice in your circumstances or rejoice because it's a good thing. This is what Christians do. No, he says rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. In Romans 15, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy. In John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, Abide in me, remain in me. And then he says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's crazy to think how much the Bible seems to be concerned about us having joy. But it makes sense because the Bible is so much about us glorifying God. It's about pointing us towards God as the supreme and most wonderful thing in existence. God's glory and our joy are not mutually exclusive of one another. They go hand in hand. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says as much. It says, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the point of existence? What is the purpose of life? The answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or if you're going to take a leaf out of John Piper's book, it's man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We glorify God by enjoying him. And the apex of our joy is when we are beholding God. We glorify God by enjoying him as we look at him as we look at who he is and what he has done for us. We glorify God by considering all that he has done for us in saving us from our sins and delivering us forever from the kingdom of darkness and delivering us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. If you are here and you are a Christian, you will not be held to account for your sins on judgment day. The massive list of all of the sin-filled actions and thoughts and words and meditations that we have racked up over our entire lifetimes, they will not be on our shoulders. They will instead go onto the shoulders, or they have already been put on the shoulders of our beloved Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he did this. God did this. God sent his son for us because he loved us, because he loves us. God saved us from our sins. He says, I'm, not going to, I'm going to provide a way for you to come back to me where you won't have to pay the cost of what it costs for you to get back to me. I'll pay that cost for you. And our sins go onto the cross. 
on Jesus Christ. They go unto him and they're paid for. And on that day, on judgment day, we will not be held to account for our sins. Let that put a smile on your dial. That's good news. Like the most horrible thing in the world, feeling in the world is when you're guilty and you're in trouble and you're waiting for your mom or your dad or your teacher to, to walk in and, and discipline you and you, you that, oh, I have no idea what's going to come on the other side of that door, what's going to happen. Christians don't live with that fear anymore. Because our sins have already been placed on Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I can't say that about you. I shouldn't say that about you. But it can be true of you. If you would come to Jesus and say, and bow the knee and say, you are my everything. You are now the center of my life. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That as we behold the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, the outcome of our faith, salvation of our souls brings unbelievable joy, inexpressible, filled with glory to us. The way that we glorify God is by getting our eyes on the light that John came to testify, the light that illuminates the darkness of our hearts, the light that illuminates the vast chasm between us and God and the great love and the mercy and the kindness of God to send his son Jesus Christ Christ, to cross that chasm and to bear our sins and to bring us from darkness into light. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, then the truest thing about you is not the color of your hair or the color of your eyes or your height or your career or the experiences that you've had. It's not your address. It's not the car that you drive. It's not your sexuality. It's not your gender. It's not your aspirations. It's not the culmination of all the bad things that you have ever done or that you have ever endured. The truest thing about you is that you have been redeemed from sin by Jesus Christ and he is now your Lord. That's the truest thing about you. That's the most important thing about you. That's what gives you your identity. That's what makes you, you. That's the first thing that makes you you. Jesus has rescued us from slavery and now we belong to him. This is true of us and it cannot be taken away from us. So finally, after having told us what the light is not, it is not John the Baptist, it is not the greatest person to have ever lived, the light is not him. John now says, he returns to Jesus and he says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, there are a couple of options that John could have chosen for this word true. He could have used one word which is true as opposed to falsehood. Truth as opposed to falsehood. There's another option that is truth as opposed to partiality, or being impart- that is something that is partial. And that's the word that John picks. He's saying that Jesus is the true, when he says Jesus is the true light, he's saying, the authentic light, the real light, the genuine light, the actual light. 
He's saying that Jesus is the genuine light. You and I are not the light. The best we can hope for is to reflect the light of the glory of God back to him and to those around us. But we are not the light. Any light that we might find in us is artificial. Jesus is the true light. We might think that there is light in us, and so we look inwards at what we can do or what we can achieve or at, at who we desire to be, and we think that, that is, we might make the mistake of thinking that that is the light. And that's a terrible idea. That's a big problem. The world tells us and is relentless to say, look inside, you, look inside yourself and you'll find the truth there. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Kids, if you're able to listen to me for a moment, there is uh, a group that makes a lot of our movies called Disney. They make great movies. Very, very entertaining. I love a lot of Disney movies. And, but a lot of the movies that we... I'm not here, just here to pick on Disney, but a lot of the things that we watch, the, the constant message is this. Look inside yourself. That's where you'll find truth. Look inside yourself. That's where you find life. And it's just not true. It's just not true. That's like saying to someone who is dying of thirst, there's a whole sea out there, a whole ocean out there, just go drink some of that. It's actually cruel. True light is found only in Jesus Christ. If you search within thinking, as long as I discover who I am, as long as I just search inside and that's all I've got to do, then you're going to find darkness. Look towards Jesus Christ and he will He will tell you who you are. He will give you your identity. He will give you all the dignity, all the hope, all the life, all the joy that you could ever dream of is found in Jesus Christ alone. See, our great problem is that we look inwards. We can pick on Disney, but we can also look to just the fact that we think it's actually up to us to, to do to do the right thing, to earn God's salvation. That we can be moral all we want, but without Jesus, that's artificial light. You can obey all of Jesus' commands as best as you can, but without Jesus, that's just artificial light. You can, applause the, the, sorry, you can earn the applause of everyone around you, but without Jesus, that is just artificial light. All of these things are attempts to say, do this, do that, do this, do that, and you'll receive life. But the gospel comes along and says, no, it's done. The gospel tells us that Jesus fully obeyed God perfectly and did so on our behalf. And his perfect record of righteousness is on offer for everyone who puts their faith in him. In the gospel, we get the gift of the free gift of perfect righteousness that was not earned by us, but truly earned by Jesus Christ and given to us as a free gift of wonderful and merciful grace. And there we will find liberty and joy because we no longer have to work to be made righteous. We are freed up to give and to serve and to love for the joy of doing them for God. We no longer need to work because the verdict is already in. We no, longer, we no longer need to make ourselves the point. And that is the beginning of our liberty and our peace and our joy. And this is on offer for everyone. This is light to everyone, as John says, and it was coming into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are not the point. God is the point.
and that is the best thing for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.